0: Hello, and welcome to Drug Fix, the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingerie, a senior writer at The Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, senior editor Brenda Sandberg, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is June 16th, 2023, an early happy Father's Day to all the dads that, that are celebrating this weekend. We hope you enjoy this FDA news update as much as whatever you have planned for the weekend. First up today is the selection of new strains for the COVID-19 vaccine in in anticipation of a fall booster campaign. Sarah, what did we find out during the June 15th Advisory Committee meeting?
1: So um, the committee unanimously and, you know, very uncontroversially recommended that the U.S. go with a monovalent XBB targeting um, COVID vaccine, um, you know, for the next sort of, I'm going to use the word vaccine campaign, but that word was triggered some of the committee members in a negative w- way. But, you know, for basically um, th- the recommendation is we need to really switch over um, our vaccines at this point for people who are going to either get need shots for the first time or are going to need a booster because um, various XBB lineages are really what we're facing right now. And, um, you know, the current um, bivalent boosters, which target the ba four 5, Omicron variant and then um, the original Wuhan strain, you know, are not doing as good a job targeting XBB. And, um, you know, the companies, you know, have also documented data at this point that, um, you know, the shots actually seem to do better when, it's just a monovalent shot at targeting XBB rather than also including the prototype strain. And there isn't really seen it as a need at this point to kind of have a, a, a bivalent shot. And, you know, I think there's some hope that it um, this helps address this idea of kind of immune imprinting that if you keep kind of vaccinating with the original strain, you're sort of more training your body, I guess, to see that strain rather than, you know, the way the virus has
0: actually evolved. So it's interesting, not at all, not not overly surprising. But I, I was curious about you were writing that they there there seemed to be some questions about whether this should be like an influenza-like. I don't you know you said campaign was a bad word, so <laughs> you know I'm trying to think of another one. <laughs> right, um, it's, it's hard. Yeah. FDA,
1: I mean that's the word FDA has been <laughs> sort of using, and um, they've um, really I would say the past maybe two cycles of sort of vaccination pushes. They've sort of tried to say, you know, we're trying to kind of simplify how we do COVID vaccines and boosters in the US to this like idea of like everybody for the most part kind of should just get an annual shot from now on. And um, they've acknowledged, I think at at times that it's a little bit more of a practical decision than one that's a completely science-based in some respects. Because COVID is not is not has some some big differences from the flu, including that you know we have seen summer waves. Um, it's it's evolved faster. There's also some positives around COVID, though, in terms of COVID vaccines seem to do better at sort of um, providing you with severe disease protection long term, and you don't have to be quite as correct in the strain selection of the vaccine to get protection as you sometimes do with flu, but. Um, Yeah, I mean, this committee just doesn't seem to be really bought into this idea of doing of like sort of trying to go trying to kind of go with this one once a year flu vaccine model um, for the shots, just because, again, their argument is like we're not there in a number of ways, including the virus isn't necessarily seasonal in the same way as flu. Um, And on the other hand, they were talking, and and we kind of know that there are older people that may need more shots per year, potentially, if the virus evolves faster, do we need to change the shot? Um, Will we need to change the shot throughout 2024 again? Um, And then there's this issue of you know, they're saying like, well, we, we might not actually really need to be vaccinating as many people as we are um, in terms of boosters. You know, um, a lot of younger, healthier people at this point who've had multiple vaccines, who've been exposed to the virus, you know, have really good protection from severe disease. These vaccines aren't going to give you much, if any, of a, you know, but a really short term boost in terms of infection. So it's kind of, there's not a lot of point of, you know, vaccinating everybody who doesn't need that boost in severe disease protection. Now, a lot of these issues, I guess, in some ways were sort of a little bit out of the, the bounds of what they were formally asking at the committee to weigh in on yesterday. But I think it gives you a good idea of maybe some of the fights to come or, you know, issues that might come up um, you know once we actually get the sponsors applications once um cdc's asip takes a look at this because they'll definitely have to more specifically weigh in on who should get boosted um you know how often um and things like that of course the other um you know the, the one thing that c- the committee was pushing on which was, was like you know we don't necessarily want to say like oh the, this is definitely the shot for like all of 2024 you know Peter Marks pushed back pretty strongly on that that idea because he was saying like well you know unless the virus really does something that's really causing you know a lot of severe disease and death in people like these younger healthier people we've thought are pretty much protected at this point like we it's just too hard to change the shots that fast so um, i think that was like an interesting conversation to me because we've heard for you know the past number of years oh these particularly the mr mRNA vaccines are easier to update, you know, and we can pivot faster as the virus changes, but it still seems like, from what Marx is saying, like, faster, yes, but that's still not really realistic um, to do it more than once a year unless, you know, you're really in a big emergency.
2: Yeah, it was an interesting uh, situation, uh, Sarah, that, uh, uh, you know, FDA will often to kind of hear uh, ideas from uh, an advisory committee about uh, you know things that they'll never do, but this this in this instance, they were kind of they they pushed back pretty uh um pretty clearly and pretty uh, pretty promptly on that, which uh, um, surprised me. The levels were kind of uh, back and forth that was uh, was going on uh, there. It was kind of like, look guys, that, that, that sounds great, but it's it's uh, um you know the reality is
0: we're no. not going uh, <laughs> to update it more than uh, more than once a year. So. Oh, no, I was going to say that. I mean, this I, I know it It sounds like I'm I'm just, you know, a broken record. But I mean, how many times have we talked on this podcast about communications problems and the covid vaccine? I mean, it, I think we're like in the double digits at this point. <laughs> this is seems to be just creating another one because they're going to say, OK, here's the vaccine. And then you're going to have all these comments roll out saying, well, we don't know if you know young people need it we don't know if kids should get it we don't know you know maybe only older people should get it you know uh, i don't know and you're going to you know it's going to be all this kind of we don't know comments in addition to we think you should get it and then then we're going to have issues with people saying well if they don't know if i should get it then why should i get it
1: yeah i mean i i think that um it was hard to i guess know by some of the fda's reaction yesterday, how much they really were willing to hear the committee, um, who was saying like, you know, we haven't figured out these communication issues, we need to be careful with language. Um, one person suggested that FDA, it seems like this committee may not be active from what they were saying, but FDA has like a risk-based, um, advisory committee they utilize sometimes, but they were suggesting, you know, maybe that's the appropriate place to d- develop some of these discussions. Again I felt like the way Peter Marks was responding to those sort of criticisms like he seemed to feel like FDA had solved some of these problems by going to this okay we're doing this one shot aligning it with flu and that's how we we're that's how we we're addressing these issues um of course like if you look at what happened this fall and you know with the pivot to all bivalent shots and everything it doesn't seem like that's worked yet or caught on. So maybe they do need to reassess. But so it'll be interesting to see, you know, if like CDC and FDA can come together, other parts of the government to really figure out, okay, how do we really make clear who needs these shots and actually ensure you get them? Because obviously, you know, um, it doesn't matter if the, the vaccines, you know, exist and the companies make them if nobody wants to take them. Now, I don't know if this fall. The companies maybe have more incentive also to try and think about how this works because they're not no the government's no longer you know purchasing you know supplies in bulk and the companies aren't necessarily going to get paid if nobody buys them right Um, Mm -hmm. so that might put a little bit more pressure on you know the the drug sponsors to figure out like how do we sell them and what what kinds of you know activities do they do to encourage uptake so maybe that'll um, shift how this works in a little bit of different way in the commercial market. Um, The one thing that like Peter Marks did, you know, say a few times, like he heard loud and clear was, and it didn't seem like pre the meeting FDA thought too much about this was, you know, with this pivot, um, what do you do with the bivalent shots, basically, like, when do you pull back on (laughs) taking those out of circulation essentially so that you know somebody doesn't like get a bivalent shot and then like two weeks later the xbb shot is out there and really we probably would have wanted them to get xbb so they, they seem more mm-hmm. like open and clear in realizing they have to figure out how to kind of cut that off and do the transitions more smoothly there
2: I was going to say that in terms of what uh, sponsors could do and that's an excellent uh, point uh sarah that's really going to be on them uh, um now uh, with the government sort of stepping away from the uh from the market to uh, to some extent but uh i'm just struck by how much people hate needles you know the um that epinephrine uh advisory committee that uh, brenda i think uh, you covered uh, uh a little while ago talking about sort of people having an uh an acute allergic reaction, you know, they're sort of having this, you know, potentially life-threatening attack, and I don't think it's that bad. So I'm just, not going to use the needle because uh, they don't want to sort of kind of even with an auto injector, sort of kind of, uh, you know, have a uh, um, have a needle, and it's just, uh, um, it's remarkable. It's not even through sort of kind of a vaccine where you're kind sort of doing it for kind of prophylactic, uh, prophylactic, where you're otherwise healthy. So, you know, uh, if a sponsor could come up with some sort of kind of needle-free version uh, you know I think that would probably solve 99% of the uh, the vaccine he- hesitancy that uh, that we're seeing here so uh, um, uh, I know that's uh, not an easy uh, um, uh, uh, an easy task or a, a new suggestion but it's just for kind of I was struck at news we looking at that uh, uh, survey data on the um, the concern about using uh, epipens uh, and it's just uh, um, it's just it's just too bad really that sort of people are for kind of denying themselves that uh, that health because of that uh, that pain in the arm.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess I think with COVID, um, you know, the one I think hope that might shift people's behavior is if we got vaccines that really did a better job at actually preventing infection, right? So that would boost a certain, um, no pun intended, (laughs) uh, Mm -hmm. like boost a certain population of people who are saying like, well, you know, if I'm, you know, 25 and I've had COVID and I've had, you know, two or four (laughs) shots at this point, they might say saying like, well, what is the added benefit of another shot now? Um, You know, like, you know, pretty much my likelihood of kind of anything really bad happening if I get COVID is pretty slim to none. And Um, even if I get another shot, you're saying maybe for two weeks, I'll be protected from infection, but then I'm still going to be vulnerable to infection anyway. So if we got vaccines that actually, you know, stop transmission and prevented, you know, even, you know, milder infections, that might shift the game a lot. Obviously, durability and longer term durability is something they're hoping for. But um, I guess the other thing that was like a little bit maybe a little more depressing at this meeting than I was hoping for is because we've heard a lot about next-gen and the need for next-gen development for a while now is it just doesn't seem like we're as far along as, you know, it might be nice to be at this point. You know, it seems like that's at least um, two years away from what Marks was saying. So we're we're probably, you know, going to be dealing with these same products for a while.
0: One of the other questions that I that I had was how they if they there was any kind of uh, I don't know if you want to call it deference or special note to novavax because they for those who don't know they make a protein-based vaccine which is different than the mRNA vaccines that Pfizer and Moderna make during the last advisory committee which I which I covered before this the one this week they said that they were have they would not be able to manufacture quick enough if you know, to have them on the market by the fall if they selected a strain in June. Well, they, you know, apparently they've tried to get around that by working on a bunch of different candidates at the same time, you know, kind of already to, and then just focusing on the one that FDA ultimately picks. But I mean, did they say anything about, you know, like, hey, we want to, you know, they've said we want to keep the protein-based platform viable, but, you know, if they can't, I, I don't know if they made any kind of, you know, saying like, hey, we're helping Novavax or they're going to do, you know, we they, we figured out how to make sure that they can get theirs, you know, ready in time along with the MRNA ones.
1: So based on the recommendations the committee made yesterday, um, which was the vote was just like moved to by monovalent XBB, and then um, they discussed like what if any specific xbb lineage the vaccine should target and basically there wasn't a vote on this but basically the committee seemed very comfortable saying either use this 1.5 lineage which all the companies including novavax could get are in a position to you know get done in time um, or let the companies actually just what they want to do in this space and that can mean different lineages from different companies and they seem comfortable with that. It seemed like there's really not much of a difference um, in response from the data they had, you know, whether you do, I think it's like 1.5 or 1.6 and maybe 2.3 that were some of the ones they were looking at. The other thing regarding Novavax, I would say, is that there were definitely some comments from committee members to make sure FDA and CDC is thinking about, like, having the option of, um, you know, allowing anybody who wants to get Novavax to get Novavax. Um, I think there hasn't been as much, like, sort of mix and max provisions, um, permissions, if you will, to let people who get that vaccine as easily so I think they you know they are thinking about kind of in some ways like pushing the government to make sure it's clear that like mRNA isn't necessarily like the default option or Mm -hmm. you know you don't need some kind of special circumstance to get Novavax um I think the two things that might make a big difference there, one will be whether Novavax is cleared under a BLA, right? Because if you, if it's a licensed product, um, you know, there's sort of off-label use. There's a little bit less um, control, again, around how it's administered. Um, And then I think... um, obviously FDA or ACIP could sort of, even if it is under an EUA, would have to kind of maybe do some explicit language. Because I think there was some concern that, um, you know, we need to make it easier for anybody who wants to get that Novavax alternative to get that.
0: I, I mean, I think it's just, you know, the, the comments that I keep going back to was that we don't want to throw all our eggs into the mRNA basket if we don't have to. You know, if, if there's a protein-based vaccine that you know, is effective and safe. They want to have it around in case something either, I mean, one, it could wind up being more efficacious than the mRNA ones. We don't, we don't really know. And two, it could be that, you know, if something else happens, they want to be able, you know, with the mRNA platform, they want to be able to have something to fall back on that they could, you know, and, and still get it out there. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it makes sense that they would say, you know, yes, make it clear that you can get the protein, Based one.
1: The, the other thing, um, last week I was at Bio and I met, I met with some folks from Novavax and I think, again, thinking about going into more of a commercial market where there might be more advertising promotion and things going on from companies and different things like that is Novavax, I think is really hoping they might be able to make this case to people that their shot is more tolerable and some of the um, reactogenicity that people, fe- um, have with the COVID shots, um, the mRNA shots, y- you're less likely to experience. So I think they're hoping that they could kind of boost again, no pun intended, <laughs> you know, boost their uptake this, um, you know, fall winter, um, with that, because, um, I know some people, every time they get one of these shots, they're sort of out of commission for a day or so. And, you know, a, a- again, unless you're getting a really big benefit, I I avoided saying boost, (laughs) Um, unless you're getting a really big benefit from the shot, right? People might not see that as, like going back to what Matt was saying about people, you know, hating needles, you know, if you're not getting a really big benefit from a vaccine, you may not see it as, you know, you know, having to, you know, lose a whole day to getting it this fall as worthwhile. So Novavax is sort of hoping like that's where they can kind of step in and say, well, you know, get our shot. You'll get protected from the disease and you won't, you know, you're unlikely to, you know, feel sick for a whole day because of it.
0: Well, we'll be looking for the start of the COVID vaccination campaign in the fall. Thanks, Sarah. Next up, we're going to continue down the advisory committee route with a look at the size of the committees. A few days ago, the Peripheral and Central Nervous System Drugs Advisory Committee met to discuss ISI and Biogen's Lakembi with a whopping six members total. For those who pay attention, that is well below the average we usually see on an FDA advisory committee, which is about 15 and 10 for that committee specifically. Our friend Kate Rawson noted in a story this week that the small groups seemed to work well. Every member participated in the discussion. No one could really hide and as a bonus, all six members were shown on camera at the same time, something not usually possible with the larger groups. And C- Kate asked an interesting question. In light of the success of the small group, should the FDA consider smaller advisory committees? So I'm curious what you all think. Do you think this would work for other products?
3: Well, one thing I, one, um, thing I thought about right away was how, how um, having a smaller committee would limit the amount of, of, um, you know, broad range of opinions and not my catch disagreements between members. For instance, I covered the advisory committee meeting for NEFI, the intranasal um, spray for um, epinephrine, intranasal spray. And there were 22 members on that, and there were sharp divisions, like, you know, a 16 to 6 vote. vote on that and and it, if there would only been six members that all happened to agree with each other then it might not have caught that kind of a range of opinion and and um you know concerns that might have come up
0: yeah i thought the same thing brenda that was my first thought was you lose some of the diversity of opinion potentially with a smaller group you know but yeah at, at the same time too if you want everyone to participate I mean, we, you know, that's a small group is one way to do it. I mean, I know I've seen advisory committees where some of the members don't say a word until they cast their vote. And so you, you know, and you don't, I don't know why that is. I mean, it could be a a number of reasons, but, you know, a small group allows you to kind of, you know, weed out those people who may be experts, but don't have a lot to add and won't say much, which, you know, the FDA is looking for comments, you know, from people. That's why they, that's why they call these meetings. You know, so I I don't know, I guess you could I could see both, you know, I could see issues with both, with both, uh, both ideas.
1: It seems like six is a little too small for me. I could see an argument, you know, for some committees being smaller, but six just seems awfully small, given some of the issues, including some of the like. Not just range of opinions you, they might be looking for, but range of like expertise, right? You some of these committees you need, um, you know, you need biostatisticians. You want people actually who are maybe actually out there treating the patients. You you know you want people that are understand trial design or you know all these different like areas where like until you've seen how these advisory committees work and the the sort of niche areas of knowledge or how much you know time. You know, and how much specialization it can take to really understand certain aspects of this? Like you don't appreciate that you know six people for some of these products might not be get you what you need. So I think that's like an, an important point and thing to to distinguish like going forward is like you know having that sweet spot where um you know people can actually participate and have debates and have discussion. But, and I think, like, it also maybe helps, like, if you get a vote that's, like, close, it's, like, it looks a little bit different when you have, like, a bigger group of people, to me, than when it's such a small group. Well, I think it's worth uh,
2: trying. I know that, uh, you know, FDA is contemplating how to uh, improve uh, advisory committees, and, uh, you know, this is uh, something that they have not uh, tried uh, in the past and we've obviously sort of seen the unanimous or new unanimous uh large committee meetings uh, as well so it's not that uh diversity of thought is uh um you know guaranteed the more people you uh you pack in on a zoom or even uh you know at some point perhaps in the theoretical future again uh you know in a uh um in a conference uh, um hall and um you know if it were to be in person so uh you know i uh i think that the fda should uh Experiment with this, like they're experimenting with other other things that they're thinking about doing with advisory committees, because it uh, um, it could actually uh, uh, have the advantages that Kate uh, laid out in her in her piece.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I you know, like I said, I I could see you know I could see definitely see advantages to this, but of course, what 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 you don't want is a six member panel and only one person talks and everyone else just kind of nods their heads in agreement. <laughs> you know, <laughs> of course, that would make the meetings a whole lot shorter. I think, which you know, some people might like, but yeah. You know. <laughs> Yeah, it's it, it's going to be difficult to try and make sure you create create the conversation that they're looking for. So, but uh, we'll, we'll see if FDA tries this again. It'll be uh, it'll be interesting to watch going forward. Finally, we're going to look at an untitled letter that the Office of Prescription Drug Promotion recently sent related to the drug Rekorev. Brenda, normally an untitled untitled letter is not that big of a deal, but uh, why was this one so special?
3: Well, it stood out because FDA hadn't the Office of Prescription Drug Promotion hadn't sent a, a letter, an enforcement letter, uh, objecting to a promotion for an entire year since last June, and so um, this really showed uh, what what um, what F- what would concern FDA to prompt a, a, a complaint, um, and it, and this one. Um, it was Xeris had a web web pages for for the drug, and um, it's a, a drug for Cushing syndrome. And it made statements about two clinical studies of the drug that uh, FDA said overstated its effectiveness and left out information in the labeling that was necessary to interpret the study results, including that over fifty percent of patients stopped treatment because of adverse effects, or or um, it wasn't working, or some other reason. And um, also, OPD said OPDP said that the the risks um, weren't mentioned, the specific risks weren't mentioned, including those in a bo- in a box warning on the label for liver injury and QT prolongation. And that warning letters typically cite missing or misleading risk information. And this one was notable to me because of the focus on clinical studies, which is less common. But Interestingly though, the last letter that OPGB sent in in last June, um, which uh, went to um, Althera Pharmaceuticals, that also involved their promotion. um, It was a promotion for the cholesterol drug rosette, but FDA objected to how they were presenting the the study results in in that case as well. They were combining the results of, of two unrelated studies and I look back, and there was another instance um, uh, back in 2021. Um, in 2021, where they also objected to um, to superiority ethics ethos- 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 claims based on post hoc analysis of studies. So that was. Um, and in, in, in pursuing these letters, and we'll to look at what, what does FDA object to, that, that gives an interesting indication. There's been a sharp decline in letters. Um, it reached the the uh, the low point, um, the record low last year with only four letters. So, um, it just shows, you know, there's, uh, OPTB has said, well, they're focusing only on situations where there's a public health risk or uh, for instance, or there's a repeat offender. And if you look back <clears throat> through the letters, that, that it has been their their focus. Cases where, you know, risk information wasn't left out that would be harmful, um, particularly harmful, in cases where companies have gotten previous letters. So,
2: so Brenda, is the, uh, is the advice here, you know, since uh, uh, FDA is uh, citing these uh, presentations of clinical studies, that if you want to avoid a... Uh, advertising letter. You just shouldn't do clinical studies. Oh
3: no! It's the how you promote the studies. I mean, <laughs> I'm the sorry, studies are. Joke,
2: <laughs> oh, I
3: thought I, th- I wonder. No, the studies are in the label, but they're just like saying they It's 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 worded in such a way. The FDA pays very super close attention to how things are worded, and they're saying, oh well, you're you're implying that it's more effective than it is uh, by, you know, by how you present it
0: so they're not really articulating necessarily like uh if you want to call it, it's you know like a new kind of approach to these sort of issues it's just kind of this is something that they've globbed on to for years now and it just happened to be they found another one and so it it rose to the level of a letter
3: well i think that i mean I, I i looked at i look at these all so often and and them at the end of the year, and like, there's a like looking to see, well, are they focusing more on <clears throat> TV ads? That's that's declined. Are are they looking at social media? And so, you know, this this th- that this category of how you present clinical trial information that just struck me. I mean, I and so I saw two other instances in the last couple of years, but I don't know how many more there have been. It just struck me that this was. Um, not a new area, but something that recently has gotten more attention. It, it, there are so few things that grab FDA's attention, it seems, that it's, it was interesting to me that they were really focusing on how how people worded information about their clinical studies.
2: Yeah, like we were saying with the uh, advisory committee members in the last uh, segment, there are so uh, a few letters these days that it's sort of kind of, you know, really sort of have a uh, diversity of citation, if you will. Uh, you know, the, the question is, is you know, are these really the only areas where uh, companies are sort of pushing what FDA considers the envelope, or is FDA afraid because of you know all those uh, legal setbacks they've suffered in terms of uh, um, you know enforcement uh, abilities, or sort of what's going on there?
0: Yeah. Well, they also OPDP has a new director, although I don't think she's very new anymore. But you know, it could be kind of you know the the new person takes some time to kind of get their own you know get their feet wet and kind of you know figure out how they want to approach you know their enforcement you know however they want to do enforcement so maybe that's you know it could have been some of that as well well she's
3: not really new she's been she was she's new as a director but she's been you know in at at
0: opdp for many many years well interesting thanks brenda well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this and previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to Drug Fix. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Brenda Sandberg, and Matt Hobbs. Take care, and we'll see you next time.